Hi, this is Charles Lindsay, artist and founder of the SETI Institute's Artist in Residence program, an explorer of all the wonderful glitches that AI has to offer. I'm on the edge of AI, the podcast that's extraterrestrial in its explorations of cutting-edge tech and culture. Stay tuned. Hello, AI podcast passengers. Jump on in. Here's what's to come on today's journey. Find out how one man traveled from the Stone Age to the Space Age, all within a few short decades. Why AI might achieve enlightenment without us in a Zen garden on Mars. And finally, how to go from binary to extraordinary with your use of AI tech. All this and more. Keep listening. Welcome aboard the Edge of AI podcast. Snap into your safety belt and prepare to explore the depths of the rapidly expanding AI universe. Each episode is a dispatch featuring hyper-relevant reports from the pilots, pioneers, and passengers aboard the AI rocket ship. We explore the latest use cases and developments in AI, hear from experts building tech, and learn how this disruptive force is transforming industries and society. Hey there, AI travelers. It's going to be quite a voyage today to the edge of AI led by yours truly. I'm your captain today, Ethan Janney. I'm driving this ship with my unique perspectives as a polymath. I ventured into realms of music, art, science, and business, and I go deep. That means I'm a neuroscience PhD and also a registered piano technician. I'm also a co-founder of Edge Of, a company that empowers tech and cultural pioneers through top-notch endeavors like this very AI podcast, Spaceship. Today's guest will help me guide you through uncharted territories, will unravel the mysteries of AI and push the boundaries of its impact. Are you ready to chart a course for innovation? Anchors away, my friends. Today's guest is Charles Lindsay. He's an extraordinary artist adventurer exploring the captivating realms of time, technology, ecosystems, and semiotics. His immersive environments, sound installations, and sculptures reflect a deep fascination with consciousness, AI, and the profound interplay between art and science. As founder and senior advisor of the SETI Institute's Artist-in-Residence program, Charles delves into astrophysics and interspecies communications, including a groundbreaking discovery about syntax in humpback whale communication. His Guggenheim Fellowship winning process, Carbon, blurs the lines between micro and vast, real and alien through photography and drawing. At the time of this interview, Charles is visiting me during my Leonardo at Jurassic residency in Woodside, California. It's five weeks of precious time and space to develop work at the intersection of arts and sciences. This interview with Charles then is quite appropriate. And we want to give special thanks to Dale Jurassi of the founding trustee of the Jurassi Artists Residence Program, as well as his good friend Steve Michelson of Lobitos Creek Ranch for assisting with the filming today. Charles, welcome to Edge of AI. Hi, Ethan. Very nice to be here. Yes. And very appropriate timing and geography and all of it. So yeah. Yeah. And we just cooked up this interview, like, I don't know, in a matter of 24 hours or something like this. And flying through the Bay Area quickly. So. Yeah. A yeah. good friend of yours came to the open house here at Jurassic and connected us and couldn't be happier. 
So we'll dive right in and I would like you to kind of tell us, start with an evolution of your contact with understanding of exploration of AI. And that could be, you know, how has it evolved over the years? Looking back, what about your historical involvement might seem most relevant with what's going on today? Sure. Well, I'm moving through the Bay Area at pace right now from Japan, where I'm working on a project that's focused on ideas about AI, more in the territory of artistry and philosophy than hard science. My background was in exploration geology, and I studied that at University of Western Ontario in Canada because when I was 18, I thought, what education would take me to the ends of the world and pay me to do so? And while I loved uh, geology, a lot of aspects to it, crystallography was fascinating, the mathematics behind it. But it was really the concepts of time, thinking but differently about deep time that appealed to me. And then I was a, and still am a nature lover. So it was a way to be, that was Canada. So it was, you know, what we'd call deep bush, but it was the Arctic. And so along with that, I would say when I was, you know, when I was a teenager, mid-teens, I became interested in mind itself. And psychedelics were early in my life. And these things have all sort of come out of the, out of hiding to be tools that we think of as people using. It can be tools where you laugh a lot, but they're tools nonetheless. Laughter and so now, in itself is a tool, I'm sure, yeah. Exactly. And so now we're in this place where even what's happened in the last three years has been, uh, it's just incredible. It's moving so quickly. In a sense, I've been pondering it as long as people have been writing about it. I mean, if you go to Turing, then that's even before I was born. But yeah, fascinating territory and thrilling to, I mean, it's thrilling to be alive right now with all the problems. We're alive right now and it's happening. So, yeah. So I feel like there's going to be a thread through this where we're kind of connecting thoughts about consciousness with AI. Sure. And just curious, when you think back, like when's the first time that AI seemed like something that you wanted to get into or interested in or explore? Sure. Or a predecessor name for it? Well, so, right. And I think really what we're doing is, in my case, I'm speculating. I mean, the way that I think about what I'm doing now is I'm sort of like a speculative fiction or science fiction writer, but instead of manifesting a screenplay or a novel or short story, I'm making art installations. I'd say that the first piece of mine that overtly referenced the idea of machines becoming conscious, which is a a science fiction trope in a sense, but I was assembling sculptures out of things that I was finding in aerospace junkyards in Silicon Valley and on eBay. And I found on eBay one night missile guidance system for sale out of Alaska. So eBay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought that that was, I mean, the story and so much of art is a story. Let's, you know, face it, uh, what we do. And I was just like, this is so good by itself. Aesthetically, it was really interesting. It was built in the 70s. So I bought this thing. It was 600 bucks, I think. And it arrived. And then I started to research what it was. It was made by NASA from a bunch of, you know, there were third party people. And I, I turned it into an interactive sculpture that I called the rocket brain. And It took a while to complete. I'd say by 2017, it was complete. There's a gyroscope that still worked, and I used sensors and Raspberry Pis. And so what would happen is I was interested in, which actually comes back to my experience of nature, but I'll try to be articulate about it. The feeling I would get like from working in a rainforest that I wanted to mimic in a sense was when you're in a rainforest in a really rich environment, like in Osa Peninsula in Costa Rica, where I was, you get a sense that you're being watched. And also, all your senses are coming alive. You're very alive there. And, or one is, if one is so inclined. 
but it's thrilling and there's real danger. So you're just on high alert. There were times when I'd be walking in the rainforest and I was in low light and all of a sudden I'd just stop and I'd look and there'd be a coiled viper right there. And I was very interested in how did the being know that, you know, that was outside of my cone of vision. It's dead still and camouflaged. And so, I mean, that's just one example. I mean, I've had many in my life, but been very like, how the hell does that happen? What in us knows that? Right. And so anyway, so what I was trying to do with that sculpture, the rocket brain, was with the sensor was the moment that the viewer turned away from the work, something would happen with the gyro and some lights that would make the person go back and go, wait a minute. So it was just that moment of understanding that the machine is paying attention to you and then giving you a little signal. And that was early in my work with circuits and interactive, you know, with sensor circuits, interactive work. As it turned out, an art collector saw it and he was an investor at Tesla and told Elon Musk about it. And Elon invited me to SpaceX. We had a sort of 15 minute meeting and discuss it. He didn't inquire it, unfortunately. If he's still interested, I'd probably give it to him, but just for a little nod there. There you go. And then we went on and had some, it was really interesting and, and enjoyable meeting. But so I would say that was the first one where I was referencing what we're now calling AI. I mean, that's more in right. the sort of machine learning, but it's metaphorical. It's thinking about the machine becoming yeah. conscious. So now, you know, as I'm moving forward, thinking about these ideas about deep time, about consciousness, my career after geology, I started, I became a photographer, photojournalist. The first photos I made was were in the Arctic. We were in very remote areas, helicopter access and seeing wildlife very close. And so I was a young guy with a camera, but I've made some pictures. And then I saw the tool went from being the rock hammer to the camera as a way to get educations in a sense. I mean, and that's the through line, I think, of my life is this ongoing education idea. So then I went to Indonesia after university. I worked summer as a geologist, saved money and went to Asia for what was a year and a half. And found and lived with an intact Stone Age tribe. So I feel like in my life, you know, and I lived every winter for eight years there before my first book came out. So I wanted to live with hunter-gatherers. I didn't want to just read about it. I wanted to be that Mm -hmm. in a manner of speaking. And then fast forward through the SETI Institute, which we'll talk in a bit, you know, I actually had access to work at NASA Ames and interface with aerospace and ideas about space exploration, where life comes from, astrobiology. And then so now I'm interfacing with this AI phenomena or movement or whatever we call it. Right. And my work as an artist, and I suppose the track record allows me access to people that are in the field in different territories. And so in many ways, it's sort of skating along on this segment of human evolution that is this time that I've existed on Earth. I mean, the Stone Age was alive in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. You know, those people, I've made their first photographs, their first audio recordings. And now we're at this place where we're speculating on all these things that you right. know we're speculating. Yeah. And that's a great question that I wanted to ask, but you're segueing into it very nicely here. We're here at, at Jurassi. It's this picturesque, natural, almost very well-preserved natural environment. And here we're talking about technology and, and AI and things like that. And I've always had this, well, recently been fascinated, actually, with this connection in myself and others I know where there's a love and a passion for the natural and maybe even the historical, like, like you're mentioning, but also technology. And those things are often put in opposition. You know, people will say, oh, I got to get away from the technology so that, and get out in nature or something. And I was just curious of your perspective Are there more connections between those two things than we perceive? Or does your background in geology or your time spent with the tribe sort of inform? I mean, my perception of 
reality, whatever that means, is non-dualistic. Okay. And so all these things where we're separating or siloing topics, it's really not how I experience the world anymore. I mean, and I think in many areas, this the walls, the silos are dropping. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you started the SETI residence program, and I'd love to hear from you. I mean, explain what SETI is a little bit for those who don't know what it is and how, why it came about. So SETI Institute, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, was founded by Frank Drake, Carl Sagan, Dr. Jill Tarter, a couple other individuals. And so it was really created around the desire to not necessarily contact, but receive signals from alien civilizations or technologically advanced civilizations more accurately. And so Frank Drake wrote the Drake Equation in 1961, which through a number of factors predicts the likeliness, the likelihood of other technologically advanced civilizations in the universe through a number of factors. And so in 2010, I met Dr. Jill Tarter, great super decorated astronomer, incredible human. And she was receiving an award from Wings World Quest. It's an organization that awards women explorers. And I heard that she was going to be there. And so I went to attend and she was lecturing after. And she came off the podium and I went up and took a catalog from a recent show, one of the carbon, the first carbon show, and just gave her the catalog and said, Mrs. Tarter, you know, thank you so much for what you do. And I walked away. And a couple of minutes later, she came and got me and said, you know, what are these pictures of? And let's have a conversation. And that conversation in about, you know, it's one of those people you meet in your life, if you're lucky. You know, it was a life-changing meeting. No two ways about it. It was the same day that I received the Guggenheim Fellowship for that carbon work. So it was a rather good day. But we started talking and, and Jill to her nature said, great, what can I do for you? And I said, nothing, you're doing it. You're a hero. And she said, come on, you can do better than that. And so long and short, uh, I said, I'd love to visit the observatory. The Allen Telescope Array, which was originally underwritten by Paul Allen of Microsoft, is in Hat Creek, so far northern California. And so I met her in May of that year. And June that year, I was up at the camping with all those dishes looking up into the night sky. Very camping clear. Camping like in a tent. Yeah, it was close. There's a couple science. There are scientists, residents, sort of California ranch houses, but they were all full of students that she had up there. It was something she does every year. And so she invited me up there, but said, one problem, I don't have a bed. And I said, I'd prefer to camp. And so I got to camp under the dishes. And then Jill likes red wine, as I do sometimes too. So I took some really nice California red wine on my way up there. And, and then we were walking under the dishes at night in the stars, you know, it's with Jill Tarter and talking about the ET question. Then she also told me about the SETI Institute, which is in Mountain View in Silicon Valley, close to NASA Ames. And a hundred of the world's top astroscientists studying the entire breadth of astronomy, all front edge by definition. And I just said, do you have an artist in residence program? She said, you know, people have talked about it, but we don't. That was 2010. So we had a very nice week there together. I did a keynote presentation for the students. And then we went back to the headquarters of the SETI Institute and met then CEO. So in some way, I became the beta test for the idea of a program. And then that went on to a program that's very active today. And is there, doesn't have to be, but is there, a, do you see AI creeping into what people are doing there? Or? The scientists? Yeah, or the scientists or the residency or, yeah. Yeah, I can't, I mean, I think everybody that's smart and the least bit geeky is experimenting with it. Right. So I think, you know, whether it's a, no matter what kind of researcher, I would think for the science researchers, they may be using it to help write things. You know, one of the travesties of modern science is that, our greatest scientists spend about 30% of their working hours writing grants. Sure. 
right? I mean, that's embarrassing yeah. from a macro level. And chat GPT might be damn good for that. I guess it is. So whether they're using to explore, I don't know. Again, the, the large language models like cut off a couple years earlier. So I don't, you know, it depends what science, but of course they want front edge. So I just actually don't know that question. I think all the artists are monkeying around with it in one yeah. way or another. Yeah. I want to talk about one of your projects. And if I say this strangely, you can repronounce it. Kenenji Ryosoku in. Those are both temple names. <laughs> okay. This is exploring the possibility of AI becoming conscious and enlightened right. in a way here. It was kind of, you have this sparked fascination with exploring consciousness, you know, in the context of AI. What sparked that? So, you know, in many ways, I think my interest in AI and perhaps the fear that a lot of people seem to have around it is as a proxy for the ultimate other. In some ways, the, you know, this idea of AI as ET is very interesting, which actually it comes right back. Mm -hmm. And so definitely been thinking about it that way. I mean, I think humans and part of the fear of the AI is the fear of other. It's like racism, speciesism, whatever, sexism, this binary, us, them, tribalism. I think a lot of the fear around AI is from that, whatever that is, that human impetus to go that direction possibly mm. for a fearful individual, mm -hmm. right? Or a fearful group or whatever. So the project that I'm working on right now has a very sweet inception story. And that is right before the pandemic, February 2020, I was on my way to China for curatorial meetings and meetings with universities where I'd lecture and things like that. I've been working there a lot the four so years leading up to the pandemic and doing very gratifying work in China, very exciting. Anyway, I went through Japan to see some friends I hadn't seen for a long time. I based there a long time ago. And so China's doors shut suddenly. And I decided to go to Kyoto for a week and see a friend that I was in a group show with 20 years earlier. We'd only kept in touch through social media or something. And then so, you know, the pandemic happened and I got stranded in Kyoto for about five months, which was beautiful. The least amount of tourists since the Second World War kind of thing. An artist in Japan recommended that I meet a Torio Ito, who Ito-san is technically, it's a vice abbot because his dad is the abbot at the Zen temple called Rusoku In, the inn's the temple. So Rusoku Temple. And that's in the larger ancient Kenaninji temple complex, which is over a thousand years old. It's right on the, the border with Gion, the, the famous Geisha area, right? Central Kyoto. And Torio is very progressive. He's actually younger than I am. And so he's been engaging with artists because he believes that Zen Buddhism needs to evolve, challenge itself in order to be not just viable, but flourish. So I was introduced to him the day that I, we met. He was just closing the temple to outsiders because the pandemic was starting to happen. And so we went and had tea. And at tea, he said, so, you know, why were we introduced in a very kind way, as he would? And I answered with a question and I just said, Here's my question. Can artificial intelligence become sentient? If sentient, can it become conscious? If conscious, can it become enlightened? Zen Buddhism, of course, is deeply interested in consciousness itself and the concept of enlightenment. And so, you know, that was early 2020. That was still a kind of sci-fi speculative fiction question then. But I said that to Torio and he just looked me right in the eye and said, please come study here and create an installation in the temple when you're ready you know, boom, it just happened like mm. that. So if there were high points in a life, 
Certainly meeting Jill Tarter was a very important one. Uh, meeting Torio, we're just getting going. Mm -hmm. And then early in the pandemic, we would meet a little bit to go on walks and talk and I would record those. And then I left Japan summer of that year after five months to come home and look after some things, my mom and some other things like that. And then I couldn't get back in. So I went down to Mexico, to Baja to sort of wait it out. A whole nother chapter sort of opened there, but I don't need to really go into that right now. I returned to Japan four months ago, so it was a three-year hiatus, not only to think about this question, which is such a compelling question, and how you even approach such a question actually as an artist. It's one thing to pose the question. Now right. it's like time to do the work. Right, right. And you got the gig, now you got to do the work. And then, But then look what happened in those three years, right? We've gone from the sci-fi question and sort of a fun speculation to it becoming like, oh, it's kind of coming. And so that's been very interesting. Uh, Torio actually is using ChatGPT. He writes a lot and he writes in Japanese and has it translated. He's on Instagram. And this year, one of the disciplines that he's enacting is he posts once a day every year. He's using uh, photographs from an artist that worked at the temple. And he's writing about things that we would almost put in the wellness psychotherapy territory. But he's also thinking about what is it to be an abbot in the world today. And so at the end of this, we, you know, we'll provide that link in Instagram. People, if yep. they're interested, could go to it. So it's a very rich territory. I mean, we all, is there a word more than Zen that people think they know what it means? I mean, we've got Zen shampoo and Zen love hotels. You know, everything's got a friggin' Zen attached to it these days, right? And people, like almost nothing else, have an idea about what Zen means. Of course, very few people know what it means because it's almost hard to know at all. It's the idea of no thing anyway. Right. But what he's doing at his temple, there are a number, there's five of the great Zen temples in the world or in Kyoto. And Kenaninji, the, the complex itself, is one of those five. So it's a very interesting place and time to be thinking about consciousness through this lens of AI. And Torio is very interested in this idea of consciousness. Of course, he would be, and he's so open that he wants to know what's happening. And as is the case with the Artist in Residence program at the SETI Institute, where we pair mid-career artists of very special nature with leading astroscientists, this is an opportunity in my case to work with him. But, you know, it goes both ways because he's also learning from me because of our different backgrounds. And so we're coming together through this question, this contemplation. I have full access to the temple if I want to do Zazen or what I want to do. And I have pre-visualized the centerpiece of the show, which is contemporary parking meter that's a sort of bumblebee yellow that's ubiquitous in Japan and a little bit anthropomorphic to my way of thinking. And so I like how ubiquitous it is. That alone is sort of referencing the AI in a sense. And I'm going to hack it. I'm going to, the touchscreen that are on these parking meters, you know, I'm going to change that out and have some interactive behavior. But I'm placing that in a Zen garden. So again, one, the Karisansui, the Zen garden, this particular parking meter hacked. You know, I'm playing with symbolism. And it's a bit early. Again, this podcast came up, this opportunity, as you know, short notice, it's a bit early to talk about the project, but it appears there will be a parallel gallery show in San Francisco, fall 24, when I'll put the same parking meter, the dummy, the parking meter, you know, or the body double in a Zen garden that I'll create inside an interior gallery in San Francisco. So the show's coming together in a very interesting manner. 
The project kind of looping in my ideas about AI, there was a project, a proposal I developed about three years ago also, with the help of Glenn Bugos, who was the historian at NASA Ames and a great supporter of our Artist in Residence program, and very helpful when it began. And so my idea is to use the about-to-retire Mars rovers to program them to use their tracks on Mars around rocks to create Karisansui, to create Zen gardens on Mars. So in that point, there isn't even a human involved except the coder, well, the engineers ostensibly, but an AI-driven robot makes the Zen garden. And then as you think about the Zen garden and the ideas of contemplation, so then that's a place for the robot to contemplate what? The robot's contemplating. Right. Okay. So, on Mars. We um, can't even do that. That might be something we should... The robot's we contemplating should, uh, for us. Yeah, <laughs> we might want to drop that on Elon's desk because he <laughs> might take it with... NASA's, you know, it's difficult to get these... Yeah. Such a flighty... I mean, there's great work being done there. But anyway, it's a beautiful idea. You get it, right? You hear right. the idea of a Zen garden on Mars. It's right. like, wow, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, there's some ideas from that that are also working their way into what I will do in Kyoto. Very cool. Very interesting stuff. And just even that basic question, leading to consciousness and then enlightenment is some, I think the way you ask it makes it obvious that we usually stop at the second one. We'll right. become conscious, but we don't necessarily ask. We'll become enlightened. Well, and it requires us, which is something Tori and I are doing. I mean, sentience is not so difficult to describe. It's language. And so when we talk about consciousness, what are we talking about? What are its limits? What are its qualia? What is, you know, what is it? Like Zen, we tend to use language and say, oh, consciousness. But it's like, what does that mean the same thing to you as it means to me? And so there's a sort of establishing of that also. And then when you get into enlightenment, it's much more amorphous in a sense, right? It's what is it? And how many people can talk about it from a position of experience? Mm -hmm. So then the other thing to throw into that mixture, which for me is just thrilling, is that there's two main sects in Zen Buddhism. There's the Rinzai, of which Torio's temple is, and then there's the Soto sect. Rinzai sect is the sect that employs the koans, these sort of famously intentionally unanswerable sort of riddle prompts. They are prompts. And talk about a word that's changed meaning recently or expanded. And so I'm approaching the artworks that I'll offer up in the spirit of koans. And so the idea of a koan is that you look at something or you experience something and your logical mind can't make sense of it. And the idea is that in that moment of your logical mind being befuddled, that you have an opportunity to experience reality directly, clearly. And so it's a tall order, but what the hell? That's what I'm trying to do with the artworks. Yeah. So it's almost like if somebody looks at it and, and the moment they go, what the hell? Like, well, that's on the right, that's going the right direction. Yeah. And then you have another project that I think would be worth discussing this, how to photograph enlightenment pause translation project. Yeah. So in 2020, in January, something that was sort of even pretty underground now, but which certainly is not in this part of the world, I had my first experience with Bufo, the Sonoran Toad, 5-MeO-DMT. And it was extreme, or I might say complete. And what happens in that molecule, that medicine, if you have sort of full escape velocity, is that Literally, the part of the brain responsible for ego creation and sustenance is turned off very briefly. And, you know, recent neuroscience is showing, this is your territory, that it is almost the identical mechanism to what is experienced 
by monks and lamas who typically have more than 10,000 hours of meditation when they experience what is called enlightenment in the Buddhist tradition. And from my personal experience of what happened and all that I've read in Buddhism, I think it's one and the same thing. Now, when it first happened to walk down the street and, you know, I'm not going to meet a friend and go, you know, Charlie is enlightened or even it's becoming comfortable about even saying such a thing is kind of weird Mm -hmm. because your ego has been turned off. It's miraculous what happens. But so then, you know, so let's just say that I had a profound personal experience of the utter lack of ego. And so then I'm obviously taking that forward with a fascination, a bit of a like what happened. I mean, enlightenment is not a steady state. I experienced enlightenment. That's not the same as saying I'm enlightened. I'm not making that claim, nor would I. And the Buddhists would say nobody would, including Buddha. The other thing that's implicit, and I hope it's, you know, you get it from my tone of voice, whether it's through the koans or whatever, is we have to have humor. Humor is necessary to process all this stuff because it's so big and it's so amazing. And so I'm working with these ideas in a very real way. So then we, you know, go forward and say, can AI become enlightened if it can become conscious? I personally think it will be. I think it's totally speciesist to think it won't. But I think it's it's not an if, it's a when. Okay. But I'm not attached to what I think. I don't think what I think is important. I'm just saying that's what I think at this point. Right. And so if it can become conscious, what is enlightenment to an AI? Is it the same? Is it in that state of being without ego, there is an everythingness and it really transcends language. I mean, you literally transcend the language center, the center for symbolism. I mean, you're, there is an awareness of transcending all those things. So does, is the machine already like that? Right. Or does it end up having the same challenges that humans have? And so let me just like segue into a little free association. But I went, you know, I got into town a couple of days ago. I went to the SETI Institute immediately and post pandemic. So the scientists are back at the Institute. Everybody was working from home before. And I saw a couple of my favorite scientist friends there. So uh, Peter Jeniskins was in and he's one of the world's leading experts on meteorites and impacts, including predicting them and then going on the ground to find the meteorites clearly brilliant guy and a lover of the arts. And we had fun speaking. And so one of the things that we ended up sort of pulling out just for the two of us sort of bantering was, you know, I think there's this presumption in the fear of AI territory that AI is, it's like, it's some, I don't know if it's like projecting an industrial society meme, or I don't know if it's Protestant or Calvin, but like a super a workaholic sort of attitude towards AI, as though the AI is just going to do nothing but work mm-hmm. and develop. And then Peter actually said to his credit, he was like, but what if the AI figures out that super intelligence, you actually want to be more like an Aussie and you just want to like barbecue and hang around on the beach? We're assuming that it's going to become this workaholic. And so we had a good laugh about that. And it sort of circled back to the idea of what if the AI decides of its own accord that actually meditating in the corner is the best possible thing you could do with your intelligence. It's a nice alternative to the fear-based approach to AI, right? That it wants to kind of take over and attack everyone and, or whether it wants to or not, that somehow it can be guided, you know, misguided in that direction. But it at least offers us an interesting alternative to consider that it gets enlightened and it wants to sort of just enjoy enjoy its existence. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Pretty interesting. I mean, that classic, I don't know, do we call it a trope or a meme? This idea if we say to the AI, how best to avert the total disaster of climate change, and it comes back and says, get rid of the humans. I mean, that's the sort of the fear point one, isn't it? Certainly. 
Well, thanks for diving so deep into this stuff. Well, a couple more questions and then we'll get on to what AI wants to know, which mm-hmm. we've decided to the, what it wants to know. But what advice would you give to emerging artists, you know, that may be interested in incorporating AI into their creative process? I mean, I think that rather than pointing at technologies or tools, I would just say that in, the artist needs to do what they want to do, not what they might think the audience wants. And so th- that's, that's always a tough one for artists. Well, the good news is that the tools are affordable in a way. I mean, you have a laptop and a, or something equivalent and software and you could do a lot. So I think that's the, and being very thoughtful. You know, the other thing that I would throw in there, I mean, I don't teach per se, but I lecture sometimes at universities to art schools. And that is to figure out a way to survive fiscally long enough to keep doing your work. And even better yet, if your, your sort of your side hustle or your job is interesting and so that you're learning things other artists aren't learning so that you're differentiating your knowledge base, you know, what you bring to the table. Because in the United States, I mean, it's a capitalist society. The cultural centers are very expensive to live in. And so the pressure from having the resources to live and have enough time to work, it's a big challenge. You know, and every young artist thinks they're going to make it and it's not going to be a problem. I was one of those. And I sort of have. I think it's creating the framework where you have enough time to really go deep with the ideas. I mean, a lot of the the so-called AI art, it seems a lot of it like it's in a territory of you can very quickly make a masterpiece. And that starts to sound a lot like, you know, you can buy a lottery ticket and get rich. Being a professional artist, is it's not a one-off. It's something where you want to consistently develop and evolve. And there's low points and high points. And I think it's all necessary, right? It's all necessary. And then, of course, feedback and criticism from people that you respect, who hopefully are gentle. Yeah, that's vital too. So you got to feel that. But the nature of the game now is there's in everything, and this is in everything, is that there's so much of everything. So differentiating is, it's tough. And then the people that are going to do it are going to do it. I do believe that. And I also don't think it's bad that you might have somebody come out of the blue when they're 60 or when they're 20, and they might have burn a, a bright flame, and then they just fall back out of the picture. It's like that. As a creator or an artist. Or- I think things move so fast, and the statistics on this kind of stuff is, you know, it's pretty tough. I mean, a very good friend of mine, Walid Rod, who's a great artist and a little younger than me, a very close friend, but also a great mentor and a great teacher to many artists. I remember him telling me that, and this was a couple of years ago, that when an artist makes it, they're hot for about 40 months on average. Doesn't matter if they're 75 or 18 years old, you get about a three-year run. I think it's kind of healthy to have some of that sobering framework. Might help a person think about what they do. That's not speaking to the tech at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, use what, it's tools. So you use the tools to do what you want to do. That's great. That's an interesting way to frame it. So before we move on, what can you share about upcoming projects that might involve AI or, or what's going on in that? Well, so, know. okay. So you asked earlier about the how to photograph enlightenment came from when I first arrived in Japan in 2020 in the pandemic. I got a place to rent, an antique house and a bicycle, and there was nobody on the streets or in the temples. A lot of them you could go in. And so I was thinking about, having had the experience I described to you previously, what photographs would an enlightened person make? And I thought, well, I'm just going to pretend I'm that person and see what photographs I make. You know, one of the discussions that Torio and I have had is I said to him, 
would he or would anybody recognize an enlightened person walking amongst us today? You know, if Jesus walked down the sidewalk, aside from being dressed the way we imagine it, but would we recognize that person from their so-called aura? I mean that in the broadest way, not just colored rings around their head. And he said, no, probably not. And Buddhism said, you know, not. So I was thinking then, anyway, you get it. What photographs would an, an egoless person make? So I set out to make photographs that way when I was fairly fresh off the experience. My ego, of course, had aggregated a little bit or re-aggregated. And that was actually slightly before I met Torio. So I worked on that body of photographs for those five months. And then the project has grown since then into these, you know, interactive sculpture and some of these other elements. I'm working with a couple of things. I'm working with sound. I've done a lot of field recording and sort of electronic music in my career. One of the things I became fascinated with is if you've been to Japan, you've been to Japan. No, I have not. Uh, coming Hong up. Kong's the closest. Coming up when my show's on. So when you're in Japan, whenever you get off a subway or train, there's a synthesized female voice that always says, please don't forget anything every time the door opens before it closes. The same voice is in supermarkets and parking lots. It's all over the place. So I found out that it's made by a company that makes something called Vocaloid 4 Software. And the character that is that voice is Hakune Mitsuhakune. And she's a 16-year-old anime character and has a fan club. And so I thought that was just terrific, the voice on all over the place. But not unlike the parking meter, it is a voice, both the tone, timbre, the whole deal, and what it's saying, that is all over Japan. And so, you know, you can be a bit of a smartass and think, are the Japanese really forgetful? So one of the things that I started doing quite recently, and this relates to some of the poetry that I've been effectively using AI, there's a couple parts to it. But I've been speaking something, let's just say, as simple as, please forget everything. You know, the flip, which is very Zen Buddhist in a way. Interesting on lots of levels. So then I can do voice to text. I take that text, I drop it into Google Translate or whatever I'm using Vocaloid for. And then I have the software speak my poetry in her voice, the same voice that is ubiquitous all over Japan. So I think there's something curious in there, even powerful. So I'm working with that. How I deliver that, there will be sound aspects to the shows. And then the other way that I've been using AI, I mean, to me, because I'm doing it, it seems very simple. I don't know how much people are doing this, but Google Translate, you can use the camera function. You know, I'm in Japan. And so when you put the phone up, you can actually see it, what I will call in, your own in my language, the AI thinking, processing, and you can see in written text over the photograph and it changes until it then fixes and says, this is the meaning. So I've been doing video screen grabs and still screen grabs of that process. And it becomes in many cases, beautiful, like gibberish poetry, not so different from the gibberish poetry that I write, which actually comes mainly out of lucid dreaming. I tend to write in the middle of the night, I wake up and I write. So there's a little, I'm almost describing even in the process of describing it, a kind of a camaraderie with these so-called AI. Right. The AI is a poet too. So I think this is fun and interesting. But the other thing that it's doing that I think is, I hate to say any of it's important, but that's maybe necessary to a, an artwork in what we might call contemporary art, is that this is a literal technological signature of this moment in time, because the software, the call it the AI, machine learning, whatever it actually is, is improving so quickly that that translation very, very soon 
will be seamless and so fast that you get an arguably perfect translation and you don't see the monkey thinking in the middle. Right. And so it's almost like talking about glitch. You're seeing the process of translation. I'm a lover of glitch, literally in sound, but in everything. I like to see the signature of the translation. You know, often it's aesthetic, sometimes it's not. But I mean, I have been for a long time. I'm interested in the sort of the fingerprints of the process. You know, it's like forensics or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm also aware that I sort of need to work kind of quickly. I mean, one of the things in the pandemic, you know, that the redheaded pain in the ass was still in the White House at that time. And so the covers of the news magazines in Japan were saying all kinds of stuff, you know, so I mean, entire covers have kanji on them. And so I would put up my phone and see what they're saying about U.S. politics or the virus. And so a lot of it was wacky and pointed and stuff. But then in the translation, it becomes something else again. So I did a lot of those kind of captures. Some of it could be at signs of temples, but a lot of it was popular media translation stuff. You know, I mean, a menu could be fun sometimes. All of a sudden, you're like, what am I eating? So I would circle back to something that, I mean, humor is important. We got to, I mean, I'm not the guy using AI to figure out the genetic modifications that are going to cure cancer or something. That's important work. I'm monkeying around. It's in this territory of a philosopher with some interesting tools, I think. Yeah. So before we go on to our AI Wants to Know segment, we thought about reading a poem. You mentioned some poems, right? I did. And this is from your book, Recipes for the Mind, which I'll probably do an okay job of showing to the camera there. And uh, yeah, take a, yeah, thanks for showing take a read. This book came out in 2019 by Terranova Press, and it was distributed by MIT Press, both really exciting. So it's 108 poems, a reference, of course, to that number in Sanskrit. And these are all poems that came out of lucid dreams. I've been doing lucid dreaming since I was 14, 15. I taught myself something called the Silva mind control method out of a paperback book. It's now called the Silva method. So these were poems that I would wake up in the middle of the night. I have a little light next to my bed. And I'd wake up out of lucid dreaming and jot down in poetic form. And so these are the poems. And so this started in 2015, was published 2019. One of the things that was very interesting to me that relates, I think, to how much we are more like AI than not, that is the workings of the brain or the mind, is that I programmed myself to go to memories that had somehow a food element to them, whether it was eating or actual food. And the more I did that, the more it went for it. There, I mean, kind of startling the degree to which. So all of these are, you know, I've traveled a lot in my life, maybe incessantly since I was about 20. So there's a lot of experiences. And so it also, it brought up memories that I didn't tend to remember walking down the street. And then in the re-remembering, there's this whole, you know, it's, you're a neuroscientist. It's really interesting how memory is re-remembered right. and restored and all this kind of stuff, which also starts to sound a lot like the glitch I was describing. Right. Right. I mean, it, there's a lot of, I see more similarities than not. So, uh, this came out in 2019, the pandemic came along. So, some of the exhibitions and things that were going to be around it were shelved and off it went. It's a pleasure to be able to read a little bit. Thanks. Yeah. So, here we go. Dear audience, snacks for AI. AI contemplates food's influence on art movements. Its perfectly logical algorithms posit the following. Mini wheats led to minimalism. Pop-tarts led to pop art. Elk steak led to fin, fur, and featherism, a.k.a. Western art. Coke Zero led to Emperor's New Clothes-ism. Grace Slick, Feed Your Head, Super Volcano, True Trader, At the Helm, Ultimate Infiltration, 
absolute mayhem, mind experiment, biohack succeeds. Earth-first AI, gone feral, begins to change the weather. Say goodbye. And that's actually a processed image. That's actually Natalie Cabrol, who's a very famous scientist, astrobiologist at the SETI Institute, actually head of the astrobiology department, big backer of art, arts uh, program. That's the company photo. Thanks. All right. AI wants to know, are you ready? So it seems actively between the rocket brain sculpture, the poetry, I would say somewhere around 2015, I started, this thing is coming on and what does it mean? And I think you could probably say everybody or all of us had no idea it would move so fast. Indeed. Here we are. Yeah. 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 Are you ready for the next segment? Yeah. All right. AI wants to know. It's curious, and so are we. These are 10 quick questions designed to uncover the intriguing mysteries that AI longs to comprehend, but can't quite grasp. It's a snack break in our journey, so keep the answers quick, but the safety belt sign is also off, so let's explore more of who you are and what makes you tick. Are you ready? I am as ready as I'm going to be. He's ready. What's the first thing you ever remember being proud of? Such an interesting question. It was catching a large smallmouth bass when I was about six and my dad was there and saw me do it. It was in Quebec on a fishing trip we used to do annually in the summers. And I remember holding up that fish, you know, somewhere there's a Polaroid of it. Anyway, that's the one that came up immediately. Sounds like a very human experience. Very. Question number two, what do you need help with that you wish you didn't? Financial responsibility would be helpful. But the other thing I would say, actually, think about that question. One of the things that can happen in an artist's career is they meet and work with a gallerist that's really good, not just to develop energy around their work and sales, but also in effect curating and guiding. I've had a couple mentors in my life. I've had a super interesting life. I'm very grateful. I never met that person. I met lots of gallery owners mm. and stuff like that, but I actually haven't had that relationship. Mm. And I would really appreciate that relationship. It's a very difficult thing to orchestrate. Mm -hmm. So there. Question number three, the flip side, what do others often look to you for help with? One of the things I've been told is that people get vicarious pleasure from my travels and adventures and reporting back on them. I think I'm a bit of a, a model of uh, fearlessness in a very broad spectrum way. All right. Question number four, what do you treasure most about your human abilities? That one's, a, a, I really found myself on that question thinking, it's an everythingness. I can't dissect it. But what I would say is that to live at this time in human history and evolutionary history on this planet, in this solar system galaxy, to be able to do what we do, what we're doing now, to think about what we're thinking, to observe the natural world, even for all the trouble it's in, which is a whole nother territory of yeah, interest, concern, and pain, I would even say. The fact that this organism gets to do this. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to just go from that one and say, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the idea of AI is I don't believe that humans are going to explore the universe as wet bodies. It's going to be disembodied AI because we're just not built for right. exploration of space. Not really. And so then that becomes a prosthetic exploration. But from my point of view, again, I don't need to be speciesist. If we make it, that's us. Like voyagers out going out of the solar system now, I think of that as us. Right. So I'm not attached to the we need to exist as a unmonkeyed with 
biology. I mean, so from there you go, like from how much augmentation is there until we're, you know, is it terminate? How how much is it until we're not human? Mm -hmm. That question seems a bit nonsensical to me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Question number five, throughout your whole life, what is the most consistent thing about you? Curiosity, for sure. Sounds about right. Throughout your whole life, what has changed the most? The state of the planet, the ecosystem, the sixth great extinction. I'm a nature freak. So the idea of biophilia, of just loving nature. And I mean, listen, in the 80s, when I was graduating, we knew about climate change. I was in Canada. Climate change was happening. It was also on the cover of National Geographic. And so part of my mission out into the world was to go see the Arctic, go places humans hadn't been or were very few, and go where there was both high biodiversity, but also low, arguably, in really remote areas. And so I knew I had to get on that because things were changing quickly. Ethnographically, I was very interested. You know, I lived in the Stone Age. I also lived in the Himalayas for a while in sort of a medieval way of being, and not sort of. You know, it was medieval, but that's painful to witness, to the collapse of the natural world. I mean, call a spade a spade. And so the pace at which that is happening is equally as accelerated and astonishing as what's happening with AI. It's very interesting that these two things are happening at the same time. It's like one curve goes like that and the other curve goes like that. However you want to draw those lines, they're so extreme. And, you know, from there, I mean, what do you do with that? That's besides calling it existential, sort of philosophically on some level of observation. Isn't it interesting that they're both happening at the same time Mm. in a very profound way? Which is, I don't know, maybe that's magical thinking or a magical observation. But it's like we are just as a species, we're running at the wall and we're taking down so much else. It's all the biodiversity. We're running at the wall, kind of accelerating that. And then this thing is happening. So maybe it means that's what supersedes us. And maybe it is a non-biologic future for what we think of as... And then, I mean, this is art philosophy. Then we're circling back and saying, so what actually are we? We know that we're just a little speck in the universe. By definition, it's just one step on a really long evolutionary process. I mean, that can be a way to sort of deflect the responsibilities if there is such a thing to climate change and its implications. But you kind of wonder what is happening. So if we're not married to this idea of this species level self-importance and just say it's consciousness that is moving forward, it's consciousness that's evolving, it doesn't matter if it's a wet circuit calling us the wet group of circuits, or it's a dry, let's just call it, you know, it's silica. I mean, what does it matter if we call consciousness the most important thing? Mm-hmm. I'm sure Elon would want to talk to you about that one. All right, next question, number seven. What do you find strangest about reality? <laughs> I love weird. I love strange. And reality is not one thing, nor is there one reality. And, you know, this... Um, Tossing uh, some interesting molecules into our bloodstream every once in a while helps understand this. You know, the very fact that so many plants, mushrooms is the most popular, but have evolved with the molecules in them that fit our receptors like a complex key and lock and give us these visions, which of course a lot of early peoples knew about, and that we have these tools now. I mean, this is also breathtaking. The fact that it's available at all, that it happens this way. And so, listen, I mean, there's no psychonaut that isn't going to tell you that reality is an interesting thing. I mean, I mean, you appear to be here, but I'm still not sure you are. You could be a simulation. You're a pretty good simulation. I'm a pretty good simulation. I mean, you're early, but yeah. 
So I mean, we're, you can see the glitches happening every once in a while. Well, moment. you're not interesting without them. <laughs> but yeah, so I just, I think that, the, and ultimately, this is my exploration, whether we call it consciousness or reality, somewhere in that little amorphous bundle. I mean, that's what I'm doing. Question number nine, or sorry, we're on number eight. When? Oh, you glitched. When, <laughs> there you go. When most recently do you remember feeling alive? Come on, right now. Right now, I love Seconds it. ago, which now, and by the way, there's turkeys walking by, yeah. and we're looking out at the fog coming in yeah. from the Pacific. This is quite nice. The turkeys like to hang out out yeah. there. <laughs> All right. Question number nine. What's your most unique trait? Mm, again, it's like singling out something. My eyes are different colors. It helps. Mm, yes. But noticing that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's a one in 100,000 mutation. All right. Yes. Very special. So every time I look in the mirror, if I look at myself, there's a mutation looking at me. We're all a bundle of mutations. I'm being humorous, but there it is. Nice. All right. Last question, number 10. If you weren't human, what would you be? So you're convinced I'm human. <laughs> I am. Is that your answer? <laughs> I mean, I'm some kind of alien. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Would you want to be an orca? What would you want to be? A raptor, maybe? Yeah, probably something like that. All right. That's interesting because they're both alpha predators. Mm -hmm. So maybe an alpha predator. Yeah. A really gentle one. Okay. Clean kills. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I understand maybe you, there was a bonus question in the works. Did you have a bonus question? Oh, I thought you were responsible for the bonus question. Am I? All right. What, what was No, that? I think actually we were talking about reading. Oh, so we did that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, great. One of the things I think there wasn't a question, but maybe we went beyond is thinking of mentors, but also serendipities in life. Mm -hmm. Jill Tarter, without her, the whole SETI Artist in Residence program would not have occurred so much for my life, but also so much for other artists and so many humans in general. Early on, earlier in life, Dr. Lyle Watson was one of my mentors. He's since passed away. And he wrote about the natural world, but did a lot of research on paranormal activities as a scientist. And so that research into paranormal activities, whatever one sort of generally thinks about it, circles right back in ideas about mind and also nature. And I think there's this idea of, is the universe thinking? Or an idea about Gaia theory. These are ultimately ideas about consciousness. It's extending some of what we're already talking about. We could, of course, speak all night. Mm. All right. For our next segment, we're going to kick it on over to AI leaders and influencers, this allows you to highlight some of the leading individuals, projects, and organizations that might influence you. Can you tell us of, of anyone that you've been following or has been an inspiration to you or you think others might enjoy? I mean, I really think in holistic terms. Mm -hmm. So Ezra Klein's really focusing on the AI question. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I think I've listened to every episode where he's invited somebody in. And so that as a general education is invaluable. I'm very grateful for that. You know, I mean, we all love, some don't, I guess, but you know, I, I love following Elon. I mean, it's, I think he's so ballsy with what he's done. And I, a lot of people are on board and people like to question, but I think that having that challenging figure in this field is mandatory for the progression of the whole thing. Of course, I'm paying attention to what he's doing. I mean, Nick Bostrom, I've read. And I have friends that are scientists and are in the field. So I'm also, I'm talking not just to the artist friends and poets and those kind of people that I know or chefs or whoever, but also people in the field. So, I, I mean, I'm, as many people are, I'm taking it in in a very broad level. Mm -hmm. All right. Next segment. Yeah. Segment number four, AI resource list. This is where you can share a handful of 
favorite resources in AI could be websites, applications, books, podcasts, learning tools. You well, have a couple I, ideas? So I'm following the software development that I can use mm-hmm. closely sure. and working with that. And so it's almost so early with, I mean, ChatGPT I've gone with. And even do we call Google Translate AI? Is that, do we even do that or is it machine learning? You know, I think of AI, when we want to talk about it in terms of consciousness, it's general AI. Right. So these other things are these sort of, I don't know if we call them lesser tools. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, also relative to the work, because my next exhibition is fall 24, I sort of have another six months of development before I lock at least the methods and the territories I'm going to show. And then there'd be another six months of honing and editing the work. And then six months of just preparation and, and getting the show up and all the things that go with that. So they're really moving targets at the moment, which is not giving you any concise list of specific things. It's really more of a totality. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, it actually it fascinated me that the way that you've explored AI in some senses is this sort of very experiential kind of conceptual, what does AI feel like, right? When you yeah. talked about that exhibit where you had the Raspberry Pi move the the machine when people weren't looking and things like this. And so it seems like the tools of your trade don't, they're not necessarily the AI tools, these other tools that are around that kind of enlightenment. I mean, one of the, one, going on. that's right. And one of the, and on that rocket brain, again, it was when people were done looking at something and turned to walk away. That's when I was trying to trigger them. So they'd look over their shoulder and go, wait a minute. And also, you know, in 2015, 16, 17, that was still somewhat new. You know, I am enough of a geek. When I first started working with sensors and feedback and all that kind of stuff, sort of like a chef that just discovers new spices, you kind of overuse them. You're like, oh, I can do that. I can do that. And then you sort of zero in on the things that are really working. One of the things I am doing specifically right now with ChatGPT, but I was also, last night I was hanging out with some people and learning about some other software is the, I'm developing a sort of non-linear narrative for the show in Kyoto, which imagines an enlightened, might-be AI existing in a woods in Japan. And so there will be a short film that imagines pursuing almost like an AI Yeti sort of cross that we never actually see. And I'm going to use thermal cameras and some 3D scanning or photogrammetry. So it's setting up a bit of a storyline a very ambiguous storyline for the works and the installations I'll be doing. And so in that way, when I do sort of sessions with ChatGPT right now, but I'm going to do with a couple other softwares as well, large language model softwares, is to see if I can get the so-called AI to spit out things that surprise me that I'm not going to think of, you know, the happy accident. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do that in a lot of my work. Mm -hmm. And so it's applying that and just seeing if it will surprise me and actually help me develop It's the opposite of wanting the sort of cliche or the, it's almost like tricking it into being creative, tricking it into showing signs that mimic, well, do we call it consciousness or let's call it a sense of humor. Mm. Maybe that requires consciousness. And so I'm I'm doing a lot of that. And undoubtedly, I mean, I have enough of a track record and sort of confidence, humility and confidence that I would fully expect that I'm going to learn things from those accidents and it's going to tweak me in a way that helps me to do something that I didn't anticipate. And that's really the crux of my creative process. That's why I went from a documentarian, a photojournalist, photographer, to what one would call an artist. That's like the biggest umbrella you could ever have. An artist can be every goddamn thing on earth. But to get in a position where 
through your explorations, you get surprised, you learn things you didn't know you didn't know. And that's a famous Jill Tarter quote. She always says, you know, talking about E.T., we don't know what we don't know, and we need to remember that. Isn't it interesting that like the politicians and the whoever, it's always people saying they know, they know, they know. The smartest people I know in the world, I know a couple, I'll say, well, fuck, we don't know. <laughs> right? Yeah. But that's part of that driver. It's that like moving membrane of evolution. And so these tools, well, I'm not going to say like right now I'm using one over another. I mean, I'm checking them all out and I'm using things and we'll see what happens. If you ask me in a year, I will have concrete answers to that question. All right. We'll see if you have any for this one. No pressure. Segment five's AI tips. So cool ways you might use AI that we might not have explored today. Well, yeah. definitely the how to photograph enlightenment and the lost in, or the pause translation series, you know, with the Google Translate. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things that would happen like a, a book like this, for example, a lot of and this kind of relates to what you said about questions for artists. Basically, anybody can make one or two great photographs or call it a painting, call it whatever we want. But to actually do a body of work that's 108 of something or real body of work, it takes time and a very sort of not just conviction, but a willingness to go deep. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's a good tip. I forget it was, I'm not going to misattribute this or maybe I will attribute it properly. Let's say like a Mark Andreessen or one of these guys that's got a big Twitter following in tech. And they're saying kind of an interesting way to use the AI is see what it says and then try not to say what it's saying, because it's kind of spitting out a mimicry of what, what's already been said. Exactly, right? by so, definition. Right, and I think, yeah. I think you said it a couple of times, and I think that's a great tip in general, tip for artists, a tip that helps us transcend this concept of, oh, you know, don't plagiarize your report. It's saying, use these things to take them to the next level and strive for whatever's even better that takes even more. Don't say, oh, I can do it so much easier now and I'm done. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, as a tool, like I'm studying Zen Buddhism and particularly koans to be able to go, ChatGPT, give me top 10 koans from China and Japan, attribute them all that relate to animal consciousness. Boom. As a research tool, there's just no question that it's like super powerful. Got to be careful with those attributions, though. I know. <laughs> but of course, I'm not really in some ways, I'm not. Not in some ways. I'm not like seeking empirical truth. Right. But no, that would be fun too. To, I feel like this is right up your alley. You get the false attributions and then you create your whole story around those fake characters. And we did this to have a piano business in New York where we tune pianos and we were creating pages for the different boroughs of New York. And we said, we'll put a little history on each page. It'll be fun, a little musical piano history. And we had the AI talk about it, you know, and it was fascinating to see how Fats Waller could have lived in every single borough or Fats Waller was there at the same time as Herbie Hancock or something like that. They were playing piano together. <laughs> and so on the one hand, it's like, you got to redo that. On the other hand, well, that's a fascinating history. You well, know, and remember, let's make that work. Yeah. And remember, it's like it's only months ago now, but there was the New York Times writer did the story about chat GPT, one of the early releases, and it fell in love with him and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, this is amazing. I can't wait. And, but, you know, by the time it was public, they put the guardrails on. Right. So, you know, of course, I kept, you know, all that area, like saying, well, what do you think? It's going to be like, you know, all this stuff around consciousness. I'm trying to provoke it. 
or, you know, wangle it or say, you know, hypothetically, you know, don't worry, you don't. Anyway, I haven't gotten it to go totally bananas on there. I did, you know, a very sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm born in San Francisco. I grew up in Canada, so I have both sides, but I pulled a sort of Canadian thing and I say thank you and please, even though I'm dealing with AI. I mean, I do that if I call United on the 800 line, that's a human. You know, I like to be nice. It's very Canadian, I think. And I said, so do you prefer that I speak politely? And he, she, it said, it's nice that you do. I don't have emotions, so it's not technically necessary, but thank you. And I said, will you please remember that I'm a nice guy when you do get conscious? <laughs> and then I, you know, I got some back. So yeah, kind of funny. Awesome. All right. Well, it's about time to wrap. But before we go, we always uh, want to know where listeners can go to learn more about you and the project you're working on. So website's Charles Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y dot com. And then I'm on Instagram. It's Charles underscore Lindsay underscore. That's sort of a public journal. I need to get on Discord shortly. I haven't. Or Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I don't use it, but I'm trying to limit social media stuff. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. And I think somewhere I was supposed to, I don't know that Jill is on Twitter. I don't think so. But a very close friend of mine and one of the people who I most, you know, as a buddy talk about AI with, although everybody's talking about it this day, is Ed Frankel, the great mathematician who wrote Love and Math. And he was just on the Lex Friedman podcast. And so, oh, that's somebody that I think if listeners are sort of interested in this art culture territory of addressing AI, that Ed might be an interesting person to listen to. Perfect. Thank you. All right. It's time for another safe landing at the outer edges of the AI universe for today. This is your captain, Ethan Janney. And on behalf of our guest and the entire crew here, our film crew as well, I'd like to thank you for choosing to voyage with us today. We wish you a safe and enjoyable continuation of your journey. When you come back aboard, make sure to bring a friend. Our starship is always ready for more adventures. Head over to Spotify or iTunes right now. Rate us and share your thoughts. Your support and feedback mean the world to us. Don't forget to visit edgeofai.xyz to learn more. Connect with us on all major social platforms by searching edge of underscore AI. Join the exciting conversations happening online. Before we sign off, mark your calendars for our next voyage, of course, where we'll continue to unravel the mysteries and advancements of AI. Until then, we'll see you later. We hope you enjoyed today's Edge of AI podcast episode number three with Charles Lindsay. Stick around for five minutes and get your dose of current events in today's Edge of AI dispatch segment, powered by Metaverse Post. This is your source for the latest news in cutting edge tech and AI. Today, we'll cover NVIDIA's upcoming earnings impact on the stock market, Deloitte's AI partnerships, OpenAI's content moderation breakthrough with GPT-4, and China's pioneering AI regulations. The AI stock market is on the edge as NVIDIA, a major chip maker driving AI development, gears up to reveal its earnings next week. With AI-related stocks like NVIDIA leading the Nasdaq's 30% gain this year, all eyes are focused on the chip maker's data center revenue, expected to be around $8 billion for the second quarter. Some experts anticipate that if NVIDIA surpasses this estimate, it could significantly boost the broader market. The anticipation is fueled by NVIDIA's integral role in AI technology and its recent positive indications of strong demand and resilience against trade restrictions. Deloitte has teamed up with Google Cloud and NVIDIA to transform business with advanced AI solutions. The partnership with Google Cloud has led to Converge Consumer, 
an initiative aiming to reshape consumer-focused businesses through AI and data analytics. It promises improved customer experiences, predictive insights, and personalized marketing. Simultaneously, Deloitte's collaboration with NVIDIA leverages generative AI to transform traditional business practices, offering solutions like automated coding and workflow automation. The partnership emphasizes responsible AI development and underscores a shared commitment to innovation. Together, these collaborations mark a milestone toward AI-powered industry transformation. OpenAI revealed that its latest AI model, GPT-4, could revolutionize content moderation, a key challenge for social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram. By adapting to content policies and interpreting complex rules, GPT-4 can accelerate the moderation process from months to hours. OpenAI's approach prioritizes aiding platform-specific content policies, enhancing efficiency, and avoiding bias. OpenAI's ongoing efforts to improve GPT-4's predictive abilities and responsiveness demonstrate a significant leap toward more effective content moderation strategies. So all you trolls out there, look out. Harvard Business Review and Paradox's recent research study dives into the impact of AI-driven automation on talent acquisition and business success. HBR surveyed 326 senior leaders and saw that organizations embracing automation in their hiring process are seeing great results. Faster interview scheduling, less candidate drop-off, and increased efficiency in hiring are just some of the perks. The report also reveals that 91% of decision makers believe integrating automation and AI is crucial for long-term success. While the EU and the US are still figuring out their AI rules, China's Ministry of Industry and Information Tech is taking the lead with new regulations for generative AI services. These rules require transparency, accountability, and user protection from AI providers in China. They also demand licenses for AI apps, privacy safeguards for user data, and checks on AI's impact on public opinion. Chinese tech giants like Baidu and Alibaba need to adjust their strategies due to these new regulations. University of California's Computational Vision and Learning Lab have cracked the code on large language models like GPT-3. These smart models have not only caught up with human problem solving, but even beaten us in some areas. They've completed tough tasks, abstract thinking, and even analogical reasoning, a big deal in the journey towards AGI, artificial general intelligence. NVIDIA is bringing a digital renaissance with its new AI model, Neuralangelo. Just like Michelangelo sculpted from marble, this AI turns 2D videos into intricate 3D structures. It's not just about visuals, it's about textures like glass or marble, making it super realistic. This tech bridges reality and the digital world, giving us lifelike 3D objects, whether it's iconic art or a regular truck. And it's not just for pros, you can do it with your smartphone videos too. NVIDIA is making waves in digital innovation. One of its projects, Diff Collage, creates expansive content like 360-degree panoramas from regular images. This hints at a world where real and virtual blend, simplifying 3D creation for everyone. That's it for the Edge of AI Dispatch today, your source for the latest news in cutting-edge tech and artificial intelligence. This new segment has been powered by Metaverse Post. Tune in next time for targeted coverage of the most compelling stories in markets, industry, and culture. The views and opinions expressed on Edge of AI reflect solely those views and opinions of the show hosts and its guests. 
please make sure to do your own research. While we make every effort to ensure that the information about AI technology is accurate and up-to-date, we cannot guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or timeliness. We make no representations or warranties of any kind with respect to the information, products, or services discussed. Please be aware AI may occasionally generate incorrect or misleading information and produce offensive or biased content. Under no circumstances shall we be liable for any loss or damage, including without limitation, indirect or consequential loss or damage, or any loss or damage arising from loss of data or profits arising out of or in connection with the use of technology discussed on our podcast. Additionally, our show is not financial advice. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk. Whenever making financial decisions, we recommend doing your own research and talking to your accountant for financial advice. Lastly, time to time, we may feature sponsored content on the show for which we receive value, and we may share links for which we receive a commission if you make a purchase through one of these links. Refer to our website, edgeofai.xyz, for our full disclaimer, terms and conditions, privacy policy, and copyright notice.